you're back and you're ready to enjoy another episode of smoke signal it's been a while uh, but we're back we've actually got a lot to talk about well we got a lot of things to record not necessarily we're going to talk about in this episode but we got a little bit to talk about this episode and then we're actually recording a second one after this um that you guys won't hear until march um this is going to be part about just a little bit of recent indians news and the second part's going to be Previewing the IBI Top 50 Prospect List, which is going to start February 1st. Uh, I'm Justin Latta, as you know, and I'm joining Michael Kuba again. Michael, welcome back, and uh, holidays are over. I'm really excited to jump in and start talking some baseball again, finally. Yeah, we were. Uh, I'm excited, too. We were just talking about before we started here about how our weeks have been going, and this is probably the best part of our week. So it's. Uh, I'm looking forward to spending some time talking uh, Major League Baseball you know, issues and as well as our minor league, minor league system with you today. Yeah, I was not being tongue in shake about my comment about enjoying this because I've had a long week too. So I'm really looking forward to talking to it. <laughs> um, that being said, who I think was tongue in shake didn't come across that way. And a little bit of news we're going to get into um, is the Dolan family, specifically Paul Dolan, but more on behalf of his family, uh, received the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Greater Wednesday night, uh, the night before we were recording this. And a lot of people were not thrilled not necessarily some people weren't thrilled and there was a little bit of you know normal Dolan bashing and ownership bashing which has been going on for you know a while now that was offended by the fact that the family got the award um and there were some people who kind of questioned the timing of it I mean to me there's no doubt the Dolans do deserve this sort of recognition because the thing I think people forget about when they talk about this award it has nothing to do with down the field performance it all has to do with contributions to the community and philanthropy which the Dolans do a lot of they've done a ton for inner city baseball programs and just the city of Cleveland in general um, you know and they're also a, a local family who owns the Indians so it doesn't happen very often so um, that's I think why that, that award came up and it was just a recognition of that and you know their stability as a franchise they aren't they haven't rebuilt like the Cavs they haven't been disaster like the Browns but it had less to do with the on the field stuff, but what everyone's mad about is the comments last night and had to do with Dolan re, 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 Paul re-referencing the enjoy him comment um, sort of it's everybody who was in attendance at the event said it was supposed to be self-deprecating. He was trying to make fun of himself and, and kind of, you know, keep things a little bit lighter and it didn't come off that way, but, Unfortunately, every time Paul speaks these days, it doesn't turn out well publicly. Um, and there's really just not much he can do right right now in, in the public eye. You know, no matter what he does, unfortunately, unless the Indians win a World Series, no one's going to look at him or they sign Lindor to a long-term deal. The city's not going to look at him favorably for a long time. So I feel bad for the guy in that respect because I think we all know he does care. I don't think the comments played well publicly, and I think – Maybe he should have gotten a little feedback on that speech before he made it. But all in all, I think it's been a little bit overblown and, and, and on top of people not recognizing what he was being, rec- what the family was being recognized for. Sorry, that was so long winded, but I felt it had to be said. No, and that, and that makes sense. And I, I, I feel uh, like a, a little bit like pro- kind of the same, but also I have a different um, maybe take on it just 
I, I know I've mentioned on here before, I think that I, I, I'd worked with the Indians before. So I have a really great opinion, high opinion of the Dolan family, all the interactions that I've had, not specifically with them, you know, one-on-one, but in meeting settings um, and the people that they have working for them, they're all just really high quality people. And I believe with what they're doing and the, the path that they're choosing to take with the team and the way that the uh, management has been able to make a lot out of nothing sometimes. And you don't have to like some of the things that the team has to do based off the market size. And I know that's kind of a redundant thing, but it's, it's not about liking it or not liking it. I think that the Dolan family, as you mentioned before, does a lot of really great things for the Cleveland, you know, Cleveland community, um, you know, to the point where um, I, I think that sometimes, uh, you know, people in the building had, had to have to like rein them in because they want to be so giving and, and try to contribute in a lot of different areas. And I really respect them a lot. I really respect um, what this award means for them. And, and I understand some of the people that were saying Fred McLeod could be somebody who have got, would have gotten this award. And I, and I agree there's, you know, I, I could see both of them getting the, the award and, um, but I, you know, the speech, it is what it is. People are going to find a reason to complain no matter what you say, what you do. I didn't have a problem with it. I kind of thought it was funny because those comments did get blown up last year when he made that, you know, had the interview before the season. Um, it was clearly self-deprecating as you said, and people that are, people just want to have a reason to, to pile on the family more and more. And it's a shame, but um, I don't think there's any reason why their family doesn't deserve this type of award. Cause like you said, they, they really do a lot around the city, the, the community um, that they don't have to do. And, and I, and I think that they're, you know, a great, it's a great place to work. Um, and I really respect them a lot. So, you know, it is what it is. Hopefully this kind of blows over, which it probably will and we can move forward, but people are going to be upset right now specifically because everyone feels like we're not spending when we should spend and et cetera, et cetera. So can't, you can't please everyone. No. And I think the timing just kind of was, was pretty bad. Like you said, Fred McLeod probably would have been a better choice at this point. Um, I think at some point it was the Dolan family was worthy of the award again, because of what it actually means, not having to do with winning a championship. Um, I just think the timing was pretty rough, you know, and I, the worst thing I'd say about the guy is, you know, aside from the spending, that is what it is, is the PR has just not been good. The speech didn't play out well, but like I said, you know, no matter what he said, anything short of him saying they were going to re-sign Lindor was going to not go over very well um, or, you know, anything else about the team or spending money or had they won a World Series. Um, but I also think it's funny that people find him to be a bad owner because of spending – and I think a lot of people would be fine with them if they had won the World Series in 2016, which they really would have no control over. Like, yes, they can, they, you know, they, they write the checks and they hire the people and people do a good job. And, you know, maybe they don't write enough bigger checks or enough in general. But it's just funny that I guarantee you the perception would change quite a bit had they had Rajay Davis's home run than a three run homer instead of a two run homer. Like, one small little little thing that they really didn't have any control over. Like Rajay Davis hitting a home run off of, of Roldis Chavin in that spot is just absolutely ridiculous. And if it just happened to be one more, one more batter on that completely, you know, for a, a decent amount changes the perception of the family and the ownership. I think that's really funny because in that, in that instance, they would have zero to do with that because the odds of, of Davis hitting that home run and 
the way it played out, especially with the roster at that point, you know, they had no business even being there. Um, so I think that's a little bit overblown. But like I said, I think PR-wise, they could use a little bit of, of coaching. And, you know, I think it would help if maybe he got in front of cameras and explained why payroll has been cut, you know, the last couple of years down from, what, 130, 140 down to – they're down to – projected to be about 90 to start the season if things stay the way they are um you know i think it would help if he answered some of those questions um you know provided he got some pr coaching before then but that's at this point that's really all you can say about the whole situation yeah that's an interesting point about the world series um kind of i never really think about that but that that does make a lot of sense because you're right if we had won like the whole knock is like we're competitive but we never quite finish the job and I you know I to me I, again going back to like what I kind of what I said before but I, I feel like the team did spend when they were at their peak like where the twins are right now to me is where I feel like the Indians were three four years ago and now we're at the point where not that we're declining but some of the core is becoming expensive and reaching free agency and and that's when you can't do you know you can't have that as a small market um be able to afford all these different guys and, and pay, you know, huge sums of money uh, to keep guys around because sometimes the contracts don't work out and you get your, get yourself in bad positions. The Rays have been trading guys pre-arbitration, you know, like right when they're starting arbitration for years and nobody really says anything about them and and they're competitive and they find a way to make it work by developing a top top farm system, um, you know, being savvy on the trade market and, and having a clear plan in place of what they want to do to be successful. And I think the Indians can follow that route and they've run much higher payrolls than the, than the Rays have, you know, in their tenure in the last, let's say 10 years. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. Like you said, people are going to complain about everything and it is, it is, there's not really much you can do. I, it would be interesting to see him in front of a camera, but I, I think that no matter what he says, people are going to nitpick it anyway. So maybe that wouldn't do a whole lot for his image and the image of the organization. At this point, it probably wouldn't. I would also say too, outspending the Rays probably shouldn't be your your goal because their ballpark is horrid and their fan base is even worse as far as how many people they have. I mean, I know the people who are fans of the Rays are great fans, but they just lack a good size fan base. Um, but outspending them probably shouldn't be your goal. I mean, I think right now the Oakland Athletics are running a higher payroll, and I would say. I don't know if getting back to 130, 140 million is going to happen or it should happen, but I mean, they probably need to go above nine, above a hundred. Like, I don't think you can go into the season at 90 and feel good about it. I think they, you know, they could easily add another 10 million to that and at least put themselves in a better spot and it maybe helps explain a little bit, but yeah, I mean, the kind of leads us into our next time. Yeah. We can go right. No, I was gonna say that, kind yeah, of leave, yeah, exactly. It's kind of a, a unintentional segue, but talking about the payroll and free agent acquisitions and whatnot. So I'll I'll let you continue with the intro into that. Yeah, uh, it it seems that one player would actually make a lot of fans happy, and I'm not saying they should not sign him. Um, you know, he given where they're at, they're at right now, he could help. But you know, every post I look at, you know, I. I I feel for whoever's running Indian social media these days, uh, just like I feel for whoever's running the Astro social media these days because it's 10 times worse. Um, 
because every every response is a trash can. Um, right. <laughs> but every 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 time the Indians post something is when he's signing Puig. What about Yasiel Puig? It, it, announce Puig, and I'm like, okay, like he's projected to put up 1.8 WAR per uh, depth chart depth charts. He was worth 1.2 last year. His best he had a 3.9 year in 2013, his rookie year. 5.5 in 2014, and since then, one and a half, one, 2.9, 1.8, 1.2. He's going in the wrong direction. I know there's going to be some people who say, "Well, WAR is not everything." And people want people can even look at his counting stats last year. You know, 24 homers and 19 steals looks great on paper, but in the offensive environment, he had a 101 uh, WRC plus, which is one percent better than the league average, and that would help the Indians right now. But the way people are talking about it, and I, I've even seen people saying like there was reports saying that he wanted three years, 15 million a year. And so people were saying, yeah, give him that. I mean, if the Indians wanted to sign Puig to a one year, $10 million deal or something, and I think 10, 10, 10 million is, you know, pushing the upper end of his price point uh, as far as comfort and what you're going to get back. But if the Indians wanted to do that, I'd be fine with it uh, from a management standpoint. But I, I just it just seems like people think he's Manny Ramirez or or he's really I, I can't imagine I mean if he if he was worth three years forty five million to anybody, I'm sure he would have gotten that offer by now and he'd be gone. Right. I I uh I guess I'm I, I'm with you. I think my my ceiling for the contract that I would be comfortable giving him would be about eight million dollars a year, one one for eight. And hopefully maybe you get him less because he's hanging around on the market for as long as, as he has. But yeah, I think a lot of it is just the name value and the, the, the first years were electric and he's got loud tool. He's a big personality. He's fun to watch. I enjoyed watching him in a Cleveland Indians uniform. I had wanted him for a couple of years. Um, I thought that there was still something left in the tank, maybe two, three years ago when they were talking about trading one of Salazar, Carrasco and Kluber for, for a bat. And I really liked the idea of getting Puig and, and he's just, you know, he's getting older at this point, not that he's old, but he's, he, he is what he is. He doesn't have a, provide a lot of on-base skills. He kind of has an empty slash line, if you will. And defensively, he's not as good as, as his great arm would make you think he is. So I think internally we have options that would fit just as well as Puig would, and it doesn't cost us $10 million. million. I'm just, I'm just kind of against the idea of, and, and I know we've talked about this a little bit too, but spending to spend doesn't make you good. It's spending wisely. And I don't think that uh, one war to one and a half war from Puig is going to be worth the $10 million we're going to spend if we're already at the fringes of the payroll as it is. I'd rather save that and potentially use it to make an upgrade at the deadline for a controllable bat that maybe ups the payroll a little bit that way. But that it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for me to do that. I would take him back, but at the right price. And if we're not going to get the right price, I don't want to fork over a bunch of money just to have Yasiel Puig like in bats for me, you know, throughout 2020. <laughs> that doesn't make me feel a lot better about what the offense is going to do because I don't think he's really that elite of an offensive player. And, you know, we talked about this the other day um, when we were talking about what we wanted to do for the podcast, but Jordan Luplo put up 2.2 war in – less than a hundred games as a platoon bat. And he plays just as good a defense, if not maybe better and had provides some value at the plate, especially against lefties. Now against righties, he has struggled a little bit, but I would be interested to give him more of an opportunity to see if maybe there's something in there that would allow him to play more. And if not, he's an excellent half of a platoon 
that was worth more than Puig playing a full year. So I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know if there's really anybody out there right now that's going to make us so much better that it makes sense to spend more money. And I mean, who knows, maybe there is somebody that they feel really good about. That's probably, you know, I don't think Castellanos is, is coming, coming to Cleveland and his price points obviously higher than Puig's is. So, and I don't even know if I would really necessarily want Castellanos either because the defensive value is so poor. He, the steamer is projecting him for 1.5 war. So he's right at kind of in that Puigish, Puigish range. Um, and I don't know if having that guy's bat in the lineup is going to outweigh the fact that he has no, really no position. Um, so, you know, that, that's my take on Puig. I don't think it makes a lot of sense unless the price is so good that you're like, okay, it's worth the risk. And also, I just wanted to say one thing, kind of a fun fact that I found last night when I was looking this up, but Puig had two little mini Chris Davis runs, uh, the two, you know, the 247 where he hit, Chris Davis had four years in a row. So 16 and 17, Puig hit 263 exactly. And 18 and 19, he hit 267 exactly with a 327 OBP in both years. So oh. very consistently average across the board for Puig. But um, I thought that was a fun a fun little fact that I noticed when I was looking through it, that I had never really seen before um, when I looked at his stats, but that's my, that's my take on Puig and I would like to have him back. Um, but I don't foresee the Indians doing anything drastic to get him here. Yeah. I think people really do just see him on the field and, and find him to be fun and maybe look at the counting stats. I, I, I think people really, I, I don't understand what happens to, even people who I think have a good grasp on the concept of, of where the Indians are and, and some even not just analytics, but player evaluation in both terms of price point and free agency and, and value, perceived value. And it just blows my mind that people are really over the moon with this guy because, you know, he waved while he was running a second. Like you said, licks bats. And, uh, and I, I have nothing personally against the guy. I mean, he's gotten some fights on the field. Um, I don't think he's done anything terrible. Uh, I know he's done a lot in, in charity. So this is not necessarily anything. I don't want to sit here and say, you know, make this the, the Puig bashing fest. Cause I think he's a good, good guy. And I think when he's, you know, hustling and doesn't cause any clubhouse issues like he did in, in LA. And by all accounts, he was great here, except for the one or two times he didn't run hard, but the Indians got on him and he apologized for that. Um, you know, I do like the guy. He's a, he's a, like you said, he's a solid player. Um, I, when I mean, you said consistently, you know, the 267 and the two, uh, 263 with 327 OBP, I, consistent's not a word I would ever use to describe him because he's been so up and down in his career. Um, but, you know, like you said, the, those couple averages and the OBPs have been consistent and that makes him consistently average. And I, that's fine. Um, I think the Indians could use more of those guys. Like you said, it's got to be the right price point. It's just there's a lot of people who seem to be, you know, wanting to hear a, a big contract on him. And a part of me wonders, like, you know, from a business standpoint, does it make sense for them to go ahead and sign him, you know, at 10 or 12 million and, and appease the fan base and hope that makes up for some ticket sales or something? And, it allows you to be a little more flexible with your payroll, like you said, because I think the important thing is if you get to the deadline and you need some pieces and you, you know, they want to add salary at that point, 
did you spend it all? Did you spend all that they're going to spend by signing Puig? And like, I'm looking, does it equal, does it, do the Indians really think that Puig's going to sell enough tickets that whatever price point to give them the money down the line to add at the, at the deadline? And I don't think it will because I, I don't think people who are complaining are going to go to games regardless. That's just how I feel about it. And, um, I know people aren't going to like that comment and, and I'm going to get, you know, people, certain people who listen are going to kill me for it. That's fine. I don't think people are going to go, I, I, whether they sign Puig or not, and they might want them. I don't think it really changes a whole lot. And I'm, I'm down on Jake Bowers. I'd rather not see 500 at bats from Jake Bowers or, you know, 315 a platoon. I'm very interested in seeing Jordan Luplo get 500 at bats. Cause you mentioned he struggled with lefties last year and he did but I went ahead and looked at his numbers in the minors against lefties and the lowest OPS he had in the minors against lefties was like, or I'm sorry, right-handers was like in the seven hundreds. So it's not like he was unplayable against them in the minors. So he has a track record of hitting them. Um, obviously, like I said, like seven, seven sixty eight is the lowest number he had against right-handers in the minors. That's a playable, you know, OPS. I, I'm not saying he's going to recreate that, you know, necessarily, but, I think given the time to get a look at them and get the consistent at bats and make adjustments and given what he did last year, I think he could. And I also want to point out that I put up a poll the other day. Um, so Luplo, the only thing Puig beat Luplo in last year was uh, he had a slightly lower strikeout rate, 21 to 23%. He had an 89.9 average exit velocity last year, whereas Luplo had 89.3. But Luplo beat him in barrel um, barrel percentage at 12.1, had a higher WOBA, uh, 3-3 stack cast WOBA. Hard hit rate, okay, Puig was at 39.1, and Luplo was at 38.8. Um, Luplo had half the chase rate Puig did and, and a 5%, 5.4% better walk rate. And if you want to look at defense, yeah, Puig has the great arm. Um, I'm not, I don't have outs, outs above average. Uh, they're both zero worth zero defensive run saves in each, uh, combined. Um, but in terms of outfielder jump, uh, Puig was in the sixth percentile and Luplo was in the 40th and Luplo was 80th in sprint speed, whereas Puig was 79. So they're pretty even there, but there's a lot of areas where Luplo grades out a little bit better. And I'd be fine with Luplo and left. Mercado and center and Puig and right at the right price, but I I'm I guess I'm stating my candidacy to see Luplo get you know 450 at bats and Puig would just be in here if uh, you know to take away from Jake Bowers getting you know 450 at bats I guess in my world. So we we do differ. I, I have a few notes written down from from what you just said that I want, that I want to touch on. I guess I'll go. Uh, start with Bowers first. I I still believe in Jake Bowers. I know a lot of people don't, um, but the I mean he had some pedigree coming up with the hit tool and the like averageish hit tool and power tools. Um, he's pretty athletic. I think like they said. I think Tito said it that last year he really didn't have a consistent plan that he implemented every single day and becoming more process oriented should potentially help him have more success where he would 
if he had a good game the day before, he would come in and, and hit 10 balls in the cage and then be done. If he had a bad game, he would hit, you know, 35, 40. And it just depended on how he was feeling and not doing the same thing every day. And I think that's where a guy like, you know, having veterans in the, in the locker room, like that he can continue to learn from and hopefully take their advice this year from that aspect of things will help him to handle the highs and lows better and hopefully have more success. That doesn't mean that I, that he's going to be good, but I, I still believe in him and the Indians do pretty well in, in, in trades, I think for the most part. So I, they obviously like something in him and I, and I see there's talent there with the barrel um, with his athleticism can play first and, and outfield. Um, and I still believe in him going back to your comments about the signing Puig to appease the fans. I think, I think the Indians going back to process oriented, the Indians are extremely process oriented in all facets of their business and baseball operations department. So not that not, it's not to say that they don't, obviously it, it matters a lot with what, what the fans are saying. And this is just my opinion. I'm not saying this from something I heard or anything like that. It's just my take on it that, they're so process oriented that although, yeah, they, they obviously want, you always want the fans approval. They're going to stick to what they believe in and what they, what they feel works. And they're going to adhere to that no matter what, until they feel like they're ready to, to spend back at, you know, to spend back at the thresholds that they were at before. And I just think that they feel like right now is their time to scale back after going above where they feel comfortable at, and now in a couple of years, when some of these younger guys start coming up and hopefully hitting and we're shuffling in some of the veterans with some of these younger guys, that's when you start to then build on the fringes with maybe some guys that are more expensive than you would want, but supplement the team and the lower cost younger players better than what we have right now. And I believe in that. I think that they believe in, in the process that they have in place. So I, I know what I, you know, I know what you're saying about Puig. Um, and, and I would, I mean, I would take him, like I said, but I don't think they're going to do anything that go that divulges from where they feel is the best process to be in for the team. Um, and then the last point is people always complain. You said people are going to complain and probably won't go to the games. People are going to go to the games and complain. It doesn't really matter what, what you do, people are always going to have something to say. There's something that's wrong, something that they don't like, you know, more dollars. I don't think oh, dollars. I don't think drives attendance in the way that people think it does because the people that complain about it already probably aren't going to games. And the people that are going to games, even though, if, even if they complain are such diehard fans that they're always going to be going to games or super highly identified with the Cleveland Indians. Um, so I think at the end of the day, Personally, I feel like winning, and this is not like this is not like rocket science, but I think winning is is what's going to drive fans at least at a comfortable level, not just spending. And yes, spending does sometimes correlate to winning, because if you spend a little bit more, maybe you have better players. But that's not always the case. So I don't think that a team that won 93 games last year with a very injury depleted roster is a team that isn't going to be competitive this year and and should be looked down upon because they're not going to spend. $15 million a year on Yasiel Puig. That's, that's my feeling on it. I, I know some people don't agree with that and that's okay, but that's where I'm at. And, and that's kind of how I wanted to address the points that you made before, um, you know, before when we were talking about some of the stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm really over the Puig thing. Like you said, if they, if they brought him back at 8 million, I'd be fine with it. I think I'd be fine at 10 million. That's kind of where I'm at. That's the high point for, I think where he's at and where I'm at. Um, 
and we'll see what happens there. I'm just kind of over the whole thing of, you know, it seems like people just think that he's the answer to all their problems. And you said something the other day too, and it's, you know, they're going to be upset when they sign him and, and if he ends up regressing and, and isn't even as good as he was last year. And, you know, he slumped with them last year too. He, uh, you know, he only had two home runs and he had a stretch there where he couldn't hit anything or he wasn't getting hit. That mm-hmm. He wasn't striking out, but he was hitting a lot of ground balls and his ground ball rate last year um, was not great. It was 38% for the year. Fly ball, fly ball rate was 40%, but um, if you dig in a little bit more, he had a higher ground ball rate, I believe, when he got to Cleveland. So he was hitting the ball in the air a lot less when he got here for whatever reason. Um, like I said, it's just it's just a whole weird thing people are claiming for him. And maybe, maybe it's because they haven't done anything that people are, are claiming for him and they just want something. Um, and I guess he is the best outfielder left in the market. Like I – I would greatly take him over Nick Castellanos. I think Nick Castellanos is a good hitter. I don't think he's a great hitter. Um, and he's very clearly not a good outfielder. So if I had the choice in the two, price regardless, I would still take Puig. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to be tied to either of them more than a year with maybe some sort of option one way or the other. And the Indians don't give out player options. So you could forget that. If they're doing an option, it's going to be mutual. And, you know, maybe you can – get him at eight and tell him that, you know, here's two to $4 million in incentives. If you hit games played at bats, home runs, yada, you know, all those kind of good things that players can, can reach. So maybe there's that too. Um, and you also made another good point too, about no one ever being happy or a team winning 93 games, having to rely on Puig to carry them, uh, you know, as their big addition, I would say this too. And, and Mark, like, I think, I think I mentioned this to you before and I mentioned this in the podcast, Mark Shapiro, said something before he left for Toronto years ago, you know, saying they, they try to make the fan experience as, as good as they can from promos to what they offer in the ballpark um, and all those sorts of things. Because at the end of the day, they only have so much control over what happens on the field and the outcome of the game. And they would rather market towards fan experience versus, you know, winning where they'd like to, you know, have winners and, and win a hundred games every year and be like the nineties and get to the world series. The fan experience is so important. And I know a lot of people had a, a negative fan experience at times last year, season ticket holders. Um, that's a whole different story. That's kind of gone past, but um, I always, always thought that comment was so true because they do at the end of the day, they do lack a, a healthy amount of control over what happens on the field and the outcomes of the game, you know, they can scout, you know, make good trades, sign good players and uh, develop players and put, you know, put a good line about, but I mean, there's only so much you can totally do at the end of the day, the players still have to play and you can't always, you know, control the outcome. So I always thought that was a good comment. I always agreed with him on that. And my other comment about this has always been, and people can be fans however they want. And this is kind of how I want to close things. I'll let you, you know, make your point here at the end, or if you have any strong feelings on this before we move on to the uh, prospect part. But my feeling on sports is always, if you're watching a specific team and your only sense of enjoyment is if they win a championship, like if you're only, if you're only a fan of a team to see them win a title, then unless you're a fan of like the New England Patriots, you're going to be disappointed like every season of your entire life. Especially, yeah. in, especially in baseball, like 
the Yankees had that stretch in the nineties, but like, if, if that's seriously the only way you can evaluate whether a team is worth your, your attention, your dollars, um, you know, your, your sanity, whatever you want to say it is, is that if they win the, if they win the title, then you're going to be disappointed pretty much every year. I mean, shoot, even the Patriots aren't even, and the Patriots didn't win a playoff game this year. Like, okay, you're going to be disappointed pretty much every year. And if that's the only way, you know, you can judge on, on, on being a fan or justify being a fan or justify what a team does, then you're going to be unhappy a lot of the time. You're going to complain. And if that's how you are, then that's fine. But that's just how it ends up, I think. And, and I, I've never, I've never, I've always enjoyed baseball for what it is. And, you know, if we didn't have the Indians, I probably wouldn't be a baseball fan because I never would have gotten into it. But, you know, I like baseball for the, the sport. And if <laughs> winning a ch- I don't watch the games to win a championship. I watch the game for an enjoyment. And if I only watch the game for a championship, then obviously I'm, I'm about to 31 in a few weeks. I would have been miserable for 31 years. You know, that's just not a good way right. to into it. That's just how I see things. It's not a good way to, to evaluate it. And I, I'd like to see them win a World Series. I think everybody would, but it was Terry Pluto who said, don't let the millionaires make you mad. And I think it's one of the best things he's ever said. No, I, I, I like that. And, and I, you know, I happen to agree with that feeling. I love baseball for a lot of different reasons besides just watching, you know, waiting for my team to win a championship. I love the nuances of it. I love the, the um, cat and mouse game, if you will, between pitcher and hitter and sequencing and, and, and how guys are going to try to you know, attack hitters and get people out. And I mean, even for me, the last couple of years, I've become more excited about reading about prospects and analyzing who has what tools and how that's going to play at the major league level more so than even worrying about what the big league team is doing. That's kind of been more of what I've fallen into. And I, I love baseball regardless. I don't know. I guess to your point, if we didn't have a team, I probably wouldn't have loved baseball unless my dad or my mom or somebody in my family liked a specific team for some reason. I guess I probably wouldn't have gotten into it either. But baseball has been a big part of my life. And a lot of my best memories as a kid are going to games with my dad. And it's baseball is one of the only sports that I can really think of um, where it's it's got a, a pace of play that is conducive to like having conversations and really getting not just getting to know someone, but really developing memories outside of just the game itself. Whereas, you know, football, it's all about each and every play, live or die. Basketball is so fast paced. Hockey is very fast paced. Soccer is really not that big in America. So it was, it was kind of, you know, that wasn't something that I grew up with, but baseball, you can really go and enjoy, enjoy a game. My dad would have Tom Hamilton on the radio with one of with his old radio you know, next to his ear. And we'd be talking, he'd be listening to the game at the same time. And like, those are the, that's why I love baseball. It's not just because we have a, a chance to win a world series. Would that be great? Of course, that'd be awesome. Who wouldn't want that? But like you said, it doesn't happen a lot. Most teams never, I mean, a lot of teams never have won one and, and whether it's whatever sport you're, you know, we could go through hockey and basketball and football. There's teams that have never even been there before. Um, so it'll come. Hopefully the process that the Indians have in place, will get them there and we will win. But yeah, that's your only reason that you're watching the sport. Then this might not be the sport for you or any sport. Like I said, unless you're a Patriots right. fan, it just never happens. Like you're not, you're not going to see your team in a championship every year. And, and that, that just, you know, it drives me crazy that that's the only way you can judge success. And like you just said, I think that going to the games with your dad, and I'm, I'm not trying to do this as like a you know a way to deflect on what's going on and 
um, make excuses for anything. You know, I, I definitely, like, I definitely want to see them improve the roster and, um, you know, make things better while they have Francisco Lindor and take advantage of this, you know, opportunity they have if they're going to keep them. Um, but yeah, I just think it's, it's, you're going to be unhappy a lot if the only way you can judge your happiness on being a fan of a team is winning a championship because you're going to be unhappy most years. Um, with that being said, I think there's a lot to be happy about with the Indians farm system. Um, I think we had a pretty good time ranking the system. I, we only disagreed on a handful of 50. I would say what, 10, maybe 13 guys where we, where we had kind of a, a gap on how we valued them. And, um, and that's, that's kind of a good thing too, because I think we can look at it from different ways with the system, but I was, I'm really enamored with the direction they've taken the last several years with, um, you know, Ernie Clement's kind of a holdover from past drafts. He's been here for a while, but um, you know, just the Tyler Freeman's and, and having Jose Fermin, um, you know, Ray Delgado or Richard Palacios, Yordis Valdez. Um, there's a ton of guys, Aaron Bracco. There's a lot of guys in the system they seem to be targeting that are middle infielders that have great back to ball skills. And I'm really interested at how deeply they've gone or how they've skewed towards that kind of hitter the last several years. Not that they, you know, weren't, were looking for guys who struck out, but I just, it seems like they've really focused on, on, that's a ball skills the last several years, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. I, I wrote that short piece that went up on IBI about it, but some of the guys that they had and Stephen Kwan, Tyler Freeman, um, Ernie Clement, and um, and for me, all had like top 15 swing strike or top 15 lowest swing strike rates uh, in the minors. So they were really good elite bat the ball guys. I, I think some of it, and I, and I heard this, I, I referenced this quote um, in, in my article, but on, I heard this on a podcast. Um, it's called Executive Access, and it, it's a really good uh, podcast if you want to hear some input from guys that are, that are in front offices and are all around the league in, in various roles. But um, a guy from the Diamondbacks was on and was talking about how he thinks that nowadays batting average, and not necessarily the counting set itself, but like the ability to put the ball in play is becoming – will become more valuable as we go forward. And I think some of that will be because of the fact that guys are so overpowering pitching nowadays that drafting guys with swing and miss issues, isn't necessarily the right way to go about it. I don't know if there's necessarily a way to, and some of it can be swing deficiencies. Some of it maybe is plate discipline, but drafting guys with good, bat the ball that can see the baseball have athleticism in their swing can manipulate the barrel. It, I think it gives you a higher floor to work with and, the Indians player development system is so good at what they do that I think taking those types of guys allows them to maximize what their returns are in the draft and keep their system stocked with guys that can make it MLB impact and hope that some of these guys with these great bat to ball skills are able to develop other tools that might make them successful. So they don't just slap the ball around the field with empty contact, like Ernie Clement does, you know, and maybe these guys okay, I see the ball well, I'm comfortable, I know I can get the barrel to the ball whenever I want to. Now let's make some tweaks in the swing, let's adjust the attack angle, let's try to lift the ball a bit more, work with strength and conditioning on lower half, you know, uh, you know, hip 
uh, flexion and, and making sure that you're strong in your legs. And, and let's try to lift the ball and drive it in the gaps now, knowing that you can attack all parts of the zone and feel comfortable. So it's kind of just a mixture of a lot of different things, but I think that's definitely an area that they want to go. Um, and it makes sense why. And to your point about the, this, the, um, top 50 list, I would say 10 to 12 is probably about right. And the guys that we disagreed with, and there really wasn't too many guys that you had on your list that I didn't have or vice versa. It was more so just prioritizing where they go and why. And, and we'll end up talking about that later on in a different podcast, but the conversations were great. And I learned, I mean, I learned a lot from talking to you about, about guys. And I looked at, I, I adjusted my personal list a few times just based off the conversations that we had. Um, so it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing it. And I'm looking forward to these modules coming out and everyone getting to read what we talked about. Yeah. And I, I definitely learned a lot from you and I've, I've actually, you know, for those who are, are listening, we're about what would say 25 deep into the fifties, what we've written so far. Um, mm-hmm. So this is still ongoing. We're still writing all these. And I've, I've learned a lot too, just from your, from reading yours and, uh, getting them ready to go on the site. I've learned a lot uh, and looked at a lot of videos based on what I've read um, from you explaining things. You do a much better job than I do of explaining uh, mechanics. Uh, whereas I, I might have gotten a few more looks at certain guys and just seen the stuff a little bit and how things played out in the field. But uh, I think it's it's leading to you know a lot of good content. People are going to be interested in reading it. Um, hopefully. The system, though, hopefully, yeah, I hope they enjoy it. Um, the system, though, I mean, we just we just touched on a middle infield. We both had, you know, several middle infielders. We can talk about our personal list a little bit too, I think, because we're not going to reveal the top fifty here. But um, you know, we both had a fair amount of middle infielders in the list because that's what really makes up um, a large portion of the Indians' system. Is you know, Brian Rocchio, Tyler Freeman, Aaron Bracco, Gabriel Rodriguez. Um, you know, you change to a lesser extent, even though he's, I really don't consider him a middle infielder anymore. Um, Angel Martinez, uh, Junior San Quentin, uh, even guys like, you know, Ray Delgado and Richard Palacios, who uh, are new to the system from last year. That's, there's a lot of guys in the system that people really like and we really like. And then you pair that with, you know, all the college pitching they've done well with. And now they have two prep pitchers in that mix. Um, I, and for the first time, I really feel good about, you know, it's been a while since they developed a prep pitcher, uh, you know, Cal, they've done well with college arms. Um, you know, so in addition to the, how deep middle infield is and how many guys I really like, um, I feel like they're in a good spot with pitching, but, you know, from the high end standpoint of Espino and, and Hankins, I feel as good about them as I have about any prep pitcher in the system, um, in quite a long time funny you said that I literally for for strengths I I wrote almost identical to what you just said I said middle infield depth with some star potential high floor pitching prospects to pair with high ceiling guys in Espino and Hankins that's literally exactly what you just said I completely agree with everything I don't even have anything to add to what you just said because that's literally exactly what I was going to say so great job great minds think alike um but yeah no I, I think they have a ton of of uh, impact guys that are that are in the system that have also made it onto our list as well. Um, I'm excited about the futures of, of many of them. I'm sure the way the Indians develop guys, you know, you, you have to hope that they'll hit on a lot of them that will be able to hit their 
their ultimate ceiling uh, of performance. But um, to go into the weaknesses now that you said the, the strengths, I, for me personally, I think outfield has been an issue for them over the years uh, outside of Valera. There's not, a, there's not really one, I mean, you can, you can put Daniel Johnson in there as a guy that, you know, you like, but they didn't really like home grow him. They traded for him. So it's a little bit different. Um, I don't, there's a lot of question marks with outfielders. You have a guy like Alexi Planez, who's tantalizing, but young Corey Holland is super raw. Brennan, Will Brennan, Mitch Longo, Kai Tom are fine. They're not impact guys. So, Benson. you know, Benson, see, I'm not a really big Benson guy. So I, I guess for, for me, he's not somebody that I, I really look at as a guy that's going to be an impact. And he's, uh, we've talked about it before. He's one of those guys that's going to have some struggles throughout the minors. And because of his profile, he's athletic, he's big, but he's, you know, had a lot of work to do on the swing. So it's really hard. It's tough for me to like sit here and judge him and say that he's not going to be any good, but cause there are, there are good tools there. But for me, I'm not counting on him ever making it an impact. Quentin Holmes has really been pretty, pretty poor as well. Similar type player. So Jerry's still out, but guys that haven't really quite panned out the way they want to. So some, and that's a nitpick. That's not really like a, there are some guys there's just, they haven't really developed an off. I feel like an outfielder that was a, a quality guy from draft until they get on to the majors in a long time. Um, and then also, and this one's also nitpicky. It's really hard to find weaknesses because I, I, I truthfully really love the system. I think in the next three, four or five months, like by mid season, they're, they're going to be easily top 10 in, in pretty much every publication in terms of uh, prospect talent that they have. Um, but for me, catching depth and, and mostly catching depth at the upper levels of the minors. So we, we like Naylor. Lavastida is, you know, and intriguing i haven't seen him catch so i really don't know what he's like behind the behind the plate but from high a up i guess if naylor goes there but from high from high up last year there's not a lot of guys that i think can fill that valuable like backup role that that might be a guy that you can be excited about i don't like logan ice i didn't personally like eric haas that much i know he's gone now i don't really know a whole lot about Signarf Sick Loopstock, but he didn't really play a ton last year. I think there was something going on outside of um, just like being injured, but I, I don't know for sure. Mike Rivera is another guy. There's just a bunch of names, but not anybody that's really going to fill that role. And, you know, I, that, that concerns me a little bit in, in the event that, you know, Naylor, Naylor is taking some a little bit longer to develop because catchers tend to do so. If Lavasita can't actually catch long term, I'm not. I don't think Yanier Diaz is necessarily going to be an impact guy either. So, you have a couple guys that you can be excited about, and it's difficult to assemble a lot of good catching depth. It's probably it's probably very difficult. But you like to see some other guys that you can feel comfortable as backups that might play a role. And I don't know if I necessarily feel that way right now, but also that might show itself a little bit more this year when Loopstock maybe comes back or potentially. Logan Ice finds a way to do something at the plate that makes him at least worth a little bit. Um, but those are my two weaknesses. I don't know what yours are, but that's what I was kind of thinking. And those are nitpicks. They're not major ones. Yeah, I mean, outfield's been an issue for a while. I'm I'm okay with where the outfield's at. I mean, I think Naylor has a lot of upside. I also think he's got a pretty solid floor. I mean, I know we don't know how safe he is at this point because he hasn't really played above rookie ball but I kind of like 
the skill set and his swing where it's going to, you know, make his floor a little bit higher. Um, I still, I still have some faith in Will Benson. Um, We'll see how this year goes. We'll see how double A goes. Like I said, there's Daniel Johnson. He still does count because he's in the system and I like, I like what he can provide. Um, There's some other guys too. I'm not saying they necessarily have a lot of impact depth, but I'm interested in, um, you know, I'm still really interested in Jonathan Rodriguez. Like you said, Alexi Planez. Um, so there's still some guys, Kai Tom, there's still some guys there. I think that makes their outfield a little bit more interesting than it has been in years past. Um, catching is obviously a concern. I really like Naylor, but yeah, beyond that, it's rough. I mean, I'm not a big Logan ice guy. I did like Eric Osborne. You did, but yeah, the next best guy after, Logan Ice is, you know, Mike Rivera is a great defender, but he hasn't been healthy and has never hit. Uh, the only thing he can really do is draw a walk and, and play defensively when he's healthy, um, which isn't totally dissimilar to Logan Ice. But, yeah, it's, they really don't have any depth there. I, I really wonder how many teams have great minor league catching depth. It doesn't seem like they have a lot. And I know some people are going to point to Francisco Mejil. They traded him. Um, I never thought that he was going to be a catcher long term. So, uh, that really didn't matter to me because I never thought that he had enough skill to catch and be effective back there. Um, and he just didn't get along with some of the coaches in the system at times either. My other big concern though, was corner infield. I know you don't ever draft, you know, first base guys because, you know, you can always move someone to first and um, it limits their, their upside. And that's not, not a place the Indians like to go with their draft. But I mean, Nolan Jones, I'm not sure how confident I am in him staying at third base over the long haul. You know, maybe at first they're going to see how it turns out, but I don't know if he's going to stick there their whole career. Um, and there's there's no first baseman in the system. I mean, there's Bobby Bradley, but you and I are both down on Bobby Bradley because of the swing and miss. Um, but beyond that, like, there's nobody in the system I look at who can play third. And maybe, you know, I guess Yu Chang can move to third, but we're both kind of down on him. Um, you know, Gabriel Rodriguez might get big enough to the point where he has to move to third anyway. So maybe that's an option, but he's so far away still. Like I'm just looking around and I know they have a lot of middle infielders who could move the corners, but I don't know if their bats are necessarily going to play there. So I really am concerned about corner infield depth going forward um, because of they don't have a whole lot of impact guys there as it is. And I don't see anybody whose bats are going to play there should they be forced to move. So I would almost put that above outfield at this point because I think they have enough upside in the outfield to at least make it interesting. No, that, that makes sense. And I guess to clarify the outfield point, it's not that they don't have guys that are interesting. There's just no, there's not like we, we have Daniel Johnson, but I was kind of categorizing him as a guy that we traded for it. He was already being played double a right. last year and got at the triple a. So it wasn't like we developed him, but outside of George Valera, who was very high on both of our lists, um, there's not an outfielder that I'm like, oh, this guy's going to be a really, a really great player for sure. There's like a lot of guys with a lot of upside, but question marks. So that was more so the, the, the point not, and I agree with you, not that the, the system doesn't have guys that could be good. Just that I'm looking at where my list was and I don't think I had, I think I had Valera for sure. And then I, I included Daniel Johnson, but other than that, I didn't have any other outfielders in my top, 20 or 25 I don't think so it just kind of the there's a lot of risk there but I but I do like the guys that we have um corner interesting point um that is I I do uh like because I didn't think about that but you're right and not maybe necessarily as much about first base but but third base 
you uh, when you draft a guy a lot of guys up the middle you assume that some of them will move off to third or, or second but to your to, to your point uh, at the end there maybe the bat doesn't play there super well I think Gabriel Rodriguez probably will play third long term but he's obviously super far away you know I think the biggest thing is trying to bridge that gap with Jones because I don't think Jones will stick at third forever but I think he'll play there a little bit and finding hopefully finding a guy that can step in when Jones is maybe ready to move to first he gets a little bit too big and slow um, and it's time for him to move over having that guy that can come in and the you know so let's say Jones comes up in I don't know 2021 and maybe he comes up at the end of this year but he's like pretty much ready in 2021 so having a guy that's ready by 2023 that could theoretically take over for him it's probably a lot to ask like Gabriel Rodriguez would be able to do that I don't think Rocho is not going to ever obviously move off short I don't think Brocco has the speed quick twitch athleticism to move over to third and and like the arm in general he's not a great defender doesn't move super well I think he's pretty much relegated to second Mm -hmm. um so I guess to your point, that is that is pretty valid. Jordan Brown from this year's draft probably will move to third if he hasn't full-time already. Um, but he's also a guy that's super far away as well. So that's a good point. I didn't I haven't really thought about that, but there isn't there isn't a guy behind Jones that you think maybe has a chance to play third. Um so hopefully not hopefully, I mean you obviously want to keep guys up the middle if possible. It's a lot a lot more value there, but some of those guys will probably move off, but they may have, they may start having to look and see if there's any value in, in the draft coming up on guys that they feel really good about sticking at third that aren't going to just become first baseman necessarily that can fill in the gaps of the high floor, um, like more of a high floor guy lower on in the minors to have that depth going forward. And yeah, Chang could maybe play there, but I don't know. I we're like you said, we're both down on Chang. So I, I'm not really sure what that would look like, but that's a good, that's a good weakness. I didn't think about that one. Yeah. They corner and field has been kind of an issue for a while. And, and Bobby Brownlee's only first baseman on our list. Uh, I know I lied. We do have John Kenzie Noel, but he's another one who's far away too. We have no idea what's going to happen to him either. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just interesting. Like, and, and obviously that comes from, you know, guys who are going like Nolan Jones, they got in the second round because of signability, not signability issues, but, um, you know, they were able to overpay to get him in the second round when they got him. But I mean, when you look at the draft, guys who are going to stick at third base and, and provide you with an impact bat, um, and even some first baseman, you know, those guys go above where the Indians have been picking. So maybe that I know their approach in the last several years has been to go middle infield and see who sticks and move guys off who can't stay. Um, but I also think that's kind of limited their power and their system too I, I don't see outside of and you know they've done a good job of getting power at untraditional areas like Ramirez his best position coming up was second base now he's a good third baseman but um he wasn't a guy that anybody was counting on to hit 30 home runs and he turned into that but he was a second baseman coming up same with Lindor so they've always gotten power out of you know positions that are maybe non-traditional even though there's plenty of power hitting shortstops around but you know, you, you think of power, you think of, you know, first base, third base outfield. And aside from Santana and now, um, you know, Ramirez playing third, they haven't got a lot of power out of the corners or in the outfield for that matter. And they have Reyes now, but I guess he's more of a DH. But, um, you know, so maybe, you know, the, the Aaron Brachos or, or uh, Brian Rocchio, 
uh, Gabriel Rodriguez, those guys might, you know, have some power in their game when they move forward. So maybe you don't necessarily need the, the traditional, you know, corner power that you would see. But I also, like I said, their, their approach in the draft may be part of this and just where they're picking, you're not picking as high where you're not getting the, um, I don't even know if these guys even, I'm just throwing names off the top of my head. I don't necessarily think they're impact bats, but they're, they're bats that can stick at the corners like an Alex Dame or a, a Jonathan India, or I guess a Nick Senzel, even though he's not, they didn't stay at third base, but you know what I mean? Those kind of guys that you think that have bats that play in the corner, the Indians aren't getting because they're not drafting that high. No, that's a fair point. And I think that kind of goes back to something that I've been, and I have no way of figuring this out right now, but it's a, kind of a theory of mine is that bat to ball guys with really good bat to ball skills have an easier time getting to or exceeding their raw power potential, which Rocio, Brock, Brocco, even though Brocco's swing strike rate was pretty, was pretty high last year. I think they're both pretty good bat to ball guys for the most part and control the zone, control the barrel very well. So for me like that, I can definitely see that some people really think that Rocio's power will become something not, not necessarily as, as prolific as Lindor or anything, but could become a better tool than you would think based off his stature at this point. And Brocco is only filling out more and more. And he was, I think he was the one with more pedigree when they signed them than, than Rocio was. Um, but they've, they've all started to fill out a lot and um, just being, being on a, a really good strength and conditioning program, hopefully eating healthier um, and whatnot. So I, I, I like the idea that maybe some of those guys will develop that typical power that maybe you don't have to worry about, than as much at the corners um, going forward. But yeah, with the Indians draft positions really hurt them in some of those areas. I mean, there's guys that they, I'm sure they would have liked to grab um, that just weren't, unfortunately weren't available to them uh, when they went to take, you know, to select and they're, and they're trying to do the best of managing the high upside part of it. And also making sure that they hit a decent amount so that they can use this to replenish their system, replenish their, their major league team down the road. But um, I, I believe in where, where they're at and the, the weaknesses are, it's nitpicky, um, because I, I really feel this way. And I think you do as well, that the system's in a really, really good place right now. And like I said earlier, I think by mid season, once some of these guys have a little bit more playing time under their belt and they're still performing, I think the system will jump up easily into the top 10. I'm not saying top five, but probably in the eight, nine, 10 range. Um, you know, and really people will start talking about how good of a system we have. Cause I literally heard someone, someone told me like a month ago, they're like, well, the Indians don't even have a good farm system. And I was like, well, you clearly aren't watching because they do. They're just guys that are far away and, and public publications are concerned to rank them too high because if they rank a guy that's super risky too high and they miss a lot, then people are going to stop believing that they know what they're talking about and <laughs> it becomes a whole thing. So you kind of have to hedge a little bit, but I think that the industry knows that what the Indians have, have done, especially in the international market has been elite the last two to three years. And a lot of these guys are going to be able to be impact MLB bats or arms at some point in their careers. Yeah. And also you can't discount the fact that, you know, their system is rising and it could be a top 10 system by mid season, but you can't discount the fact they might use some of that depth to trade for, you know, where their weaknesses are, you know, a catcher or a corner or an outfield. I mean, especially with their pitching. Um, True. Know, 
that's 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 part of it too. Not just the guys you think can help your team, but guys that you think carry enough trade value. I mean, you're not going to keep Tyler Freeman, Brian Rocchio, Aaron Brocho, Aaron Brocco, Gabriel Rodriguez, Jose Fermin, Angel Martinez, and and all these guys if you think they're going to be major league players at the middle infield spots. Like there there's just not enough room for all them. So you're eventually going to have to do something, and especially and the same goes for pitching. You know, I mean. You know, they have at the starting five, and there's Logan Allen, Tristan McKenzie, and, um, you know, Luis Oviedo, and Logan, and I think I mentioned Logan Allen, um, you know, Eli Morgan, Cody Morris, Sam Henches. I mean, you know, Adam Scott. There's a bunch of these dudes that are really interesting that other teams might value. And if you think that you've done a good job developing them and, and other teams do see the value, you can flip that to, to offset your weaknesses too at the major league level. So, um, that's another interesting point in, in collecting talent the way they have, because, you know, guys who can play up the middle or, or the more pitching you have, those guys become more valuable if they become viable major league players and you already have depth there and you can move that to offset the weaknesses you, you know, you might have in the system. So there's that too. So to wrap this up, do you have anybody you want to point out on your list or our list that fans should probably watch for this year? I think, you know, we talked about Espino and Hankins. We talked about, you know, Jones and Valera. Um, so people know the name. So who, who are you looking at on your list or our list um, that I think you think people should know about going into 2020 and as they start reading our, our capsules? There, there's a handful of names, but I'll focus on three specifically. I'll, I'll say one, Alexi Planez. Um, he had a broken handmate bone last year, so he only played in like four to five games, but uh, high upside outfield prospect plays center field right now. Lots of raw power, athletic actions in his swing. We'll like to see what he's able to do with a full season of rookie ball under his belt. I don't think that he would be promoted to Mahoning Valley, but you never know. Um, but he's a guy that has a potential, uh, all, you know, roll six all-star upside if all things break well for him. And that's not saying he will necessarily hit that, but there's a lot of talent there to, to be had. And a lot of places are very high on him. And we are also high on him. Um, Hunter Gaddis is one guy I'm interested in. I think you could see Gaddis take the Cody Morris track and start to really improve over the next couple of years. He has the makings of, I don't know necessarily if I would say uh, has a plus pitch, but four pitches that he uses fairly well um, to get outs. Um, I like the size. I like the way the arm slot plays with his arsenal. Um, and I think there's some areas that he can improve on mechanically and kinematically that might be able to allow him to get more out of his body um, and, and really potentially start throwing a little bit harder and give himself a wider margin of error. But um, he's a guy that I'm interested uh, to see. He really dominated rookie ball and, and, um, and a short season a ball last year, uh, which he should as a three-year college pitcher. But uh, this year, I would think he might be at Lake County maybe some point in the season, although it's a very deep rotation, so who knows. Um, but he'll be a guy to watch. And then uh, I would also say that um, maybe Jordan Brown is another guy to watch. Uh, he, I really like him a lot. I, he really, 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 really struggled last year when he got drafted, but I'm very much intrigued to see how the size – athleticism plays at third base. He's definitely got a lot of room to grow and there's things that he's been tinkering with in his swing that uh, I would hope eventually start to play better in game. He's a big developmental project. The chances of him succeeding are probably 
far, far lower than him just busting and never making it past like low A. But I really, really like the tools that he has. And I believe the Indians were able to uh, get the most out of guys like that. So he'll be a guy that I'm interested in watching uh, as well this coming year. Who Who is on your list? Is there anybody that you're interested in? Yeah, I, I think he might start at Mahoning Valley again. But I, I think there's a chance he gets to Lake County. We both kind of like him. It was Corey Holland, super raw last mm-hmm. year. Um, I'm really interested to see the work they do with him because I think you and I both agree there's some interesting raw tool, tools there, a lot of speed. Um, the outfield Lake County is definitely going to have George Valera in it. Um, beyond that, I don't know who else is going to be there. Um, Jonathan Rodriguez is another guy I'm really interested in. He, I think he'll be at Lake County start. He was in Mahoning Valley last year. Um, and he's, you know, one of those guys that's just going to need a lot of time in the minors to, for things to come together if they ever do. And like you said, there's a high chance that he ends up, you know, never making it either in past double A. But I like the plate discipline that he has. Um, I like the size. I know he's got a long way to go with his swing. Um, I know he's not the most gifted. For, for a guy who's got a solid frame, he's not the most athletically gifted outfielder. Um, he's probably more of a third baseman or not a third baseman, left fielder. Um, but I really like the switch hitting ability. I like the, the plate discipline he has. I think there's a lot of tools there offensively that are interesting that could come together really well. You can mention everybody in that rotation um, at Lake County. Uh, I think there's a good chance they're going to see a lot of piggybacking there because of so many arms. Uh, I think they saw Ray Burgos a little bit last year in Lake County. He'll be back there, I believe. Um, Nick Mikulajic, another kid too that that had great strikeout to walk into some college surprise, um, and had the same success in Mahoning Valley. He'll end up being in the bullpen in Lake County, but I think he's a guy who could move fast through the system um, as a reliever, you know, and kind of join the ranks of uh, Nick Sandlin or Jared Robinson and Cam Hill and all those guys. I think he can move really fast, and that rotation in Lake County is going to be good. And there's going to be some piggyback opportunities, but um, I think he'll be one of the better relievers in that bullpen. Um, you know, as far as exciting as that can get. Uh, I think Michael Cooper is going to start the year at first base in Lake County, but I'd be interested to see if, if John Kenzie Noel gets there too. Uh, he's got a long way to go. I'm sure he'll be at Mullen Valley at some point, but I kind of wonder if he'll flip those guys uh, depending on the success as well. Yeah, I think that's pretty, that, that's fair. I had, I had Holland and, uh, and Rodriguez on my list as well and John Kenzie Noel. So, we were pretty much same across the board there um, in, in our thought process, but I'm excited about a lot of those guys uh, and Mahoning Valley and Lake County will be really, really, really fun to watch this year. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to being able to get out to some games and, and see what these guys are, are looking like and producing during the season. Yeah, those are going to be two fun, fun things. Lynchburg, Lynchburg should be interesting. Akron, uh, a little bit. I mean, I'm sure Nolan Jones yeah. will start, start there. I think Freeman could get to Akron pretty quickly. I think he wouldn't need a whole lot more time at Lynchburg. Um, so they could be interesting more quickly. I think McKenzie, as long as he's healthy, starts the year in Akron. Um, so that's interesting, too. I also think Fermin can get to Akron. I, I kind of wanted to mention Fermin. I, I'm really high on Fermin compared to some other people. Um, I wanted to mention him. I think enough fans know about him, but I think He's got – if he has a really good year at Lynchburg and gets to Akron, I think he could really sneak up on some people in terms of what value he can add at second base. So that's another name I would watch for. Um, I mean, there's a lot of top 10 guys in our, our list that I think by the end of the year could be on top 100 lists nationally. Um, 
but I mean, like, you know, Indians fans already know who those guys are. Um, Cody Morris, too, is high on our list. I think people will start to realize who he is as the year goes on as well. I think he'll push his name into the fray with, you know, above Sam Henches and, and below McKenzie and Logan Allen as well in terms of uh, proximity to the big leagues. I think there's someone there who could get there pretty quick. Um, so we're going to we're gonna finish there. You got anything you want to add to this one? This is going to be out before the um, other podcasts we talk about the prospects. But is there anything you want to add? Or, uh, you know, finish off on this one with? No, I feel like we did a good job getting through everything and looking forward to uh, recording the, the Prospects podcast <laughs> as well, even though no one's going to get to listen to that for a little while. But, um, you know, I think, we did, I think we did a good job. I feel good about where we're at. And uh, hopefully everyone who's, who listens to this, uh, you know, got something out of it as well. Yeah, so I, I'm working on. I haven't gotten through a lot of it yet, but I am. I am writing a piece about Jordan Luplo coming up, just because I did go through those numbers the other day, and I did have that poll. So I'm really interested to see what he could do over full season if, if given enough at bats. Um, so I'll have something coming out on that, and then starting February 1st, start reading the capsules. Um, those are going to come out uh, six days a week. We won't have them on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday, uh, you can start reading those February 1st, roughly about 10 in the morning. So. Watch out for those. Um, hope you enjoy the podcast. And um, as you mentioned, we're going to have the, the prospect podcast, the top 50 podcast uh, out at the end of um, March. So we're going to record that now and you'll get that in March. So uh, be on the lookout for that. And thanks for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon.